Amen. Last little bit. The Lord has been giving us some encouragement, some preparation. I can't tell you exactly why the Lord often... I, I can only imagine it's for our own benefit that the Lord picks something like New Year's Eve to tell us something about the rest of the year. Because you know God's not restricted to our idea of January, February, March. He's not, that's not a year to Him. You know, it is not like He changes His plans January 1st. However, it is a time when you begin to look ahead. It is a time when you begin to refocus. And often, uh, coming off that Christmas shift, it's a time where we truly begin to think about the things that matter for the rest of the year. So God, in His kindness, has, has seen that as a time to often speak to us in ways that will influence us for the next year, if not the next five. So when He spoke to us on December 31st, January 1st of this past uh, holiday celebration, we heard some wonderful encouragement. But of course we heard Him speak of some of the things that were coming that 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 quite frankly didn't sound like an amusement park. And, and at first glance, you may be dismayed, but of course the whole message of it, the whole reason Jesus warned his disciples was so that they would not be dismayed. Here's the, here's the, here's the misconception, is that if somebody warns you, don't, don't warn people because then they'll become discouraged. No, no, the real truth of the matter is, if you look throughout the Bible, there's warnings so that they would not be discouraged when it came. Because the ones that fail to heed the warnings, they're the ones that are discouraged because they're surprised. But the ones that know that they have a refuge, the ones that know that they have a secret place to dwell in, the ones that know that they have a house that will stand a storm, the ones that know they can have roots that will withstand persecution and tribulation, these ones are not discouraged when the time of tribulation comes or when the time of opportunity comes. I've said this to you many times. If I've said it once, I've said it probably about ten times. That the time of adversity and the time of opportunity are so close to the same thing often. And they require the same thing from you. They require full faith and reliance on God. They require you to be of good courage and not afraid, but a strong and courageous. They require you to stand on the word of God and not on the word of men. They require you to focus your attention, focus your energy, and focus your heart on everything that He has said and that He has planned, and forget what you see, focus on what He sees. They will all require this of you. They will all test you. Opportunity and adversity will test you to see if you're real. Here's the good news, like we talked about last week. Here's the good news. You're real. You're real. All of this stuff, all this sifting like wheat, all of this testing is only going to destroy a fake. It won't destroy the real one. You're real. Don't fear. You have a real faith and a real God. Don't fear. Don't be discouraged. Jesus says in Mark 4, when he talks about he talks about the seed that falls on the road. That's a hard heart. But then he talks about the seed that falls on shallow, rocky soil. So there's, there's a little bit of soil, but then it hits rocks, right? He says that, they, they take it joyfully. But when tribulation and persecution arise because of the word, they fall away. So one thing we can know for sure 
if we are receiving the genuine, true word of God, persecution and tribulation will come. The Lord Jesus said that. Now, if you're receiving a, a nice inspirational message that has 21 leadership qualities you need to know, you probably don't need to be worried too much for right now. But if you're, if you're really hearing the word of God, something's going to come to test that word. Here's the good news. You let that be the real thing to you. You really put down roots and you don't get plucked up and you don't get disturbed and you don't get destroyed. Too many people hear this with the eyes of faith. They're, they, they're more than conquerors, but they imagine that they can be more than conquerors like Don Quixote was more than a conqueror, chasing windmills and hoping that nobody ever fights you. God did not call you to be more than a conqueror in a carnival. He calls you to be more than a conqueror in a battle. Now, he's not sending the enemy. He is not, for one second, even participating or talking to the enemy. But the enemy comes. And you know what? It's good that you're standing in the way of the enemy. Otherwise, he'd get straight to the troops in the reserve that don't have anything going for him, and he'd slaughter them like sheep. So it's a good thing you're right here. Sometimes the battles you fight, you fight on behalf of others so that others don't have to fight them. So don't be so afraid of it because you may be strong enough to beat something that would have destroyed someone else. Ah, we don't, we, don't ask for, we don't ask for tribulation. You're a fool to do that. You're working for the wrong team. But you say, Lord, prepare me because I know you said that it arises because of the Word. The Word produces growth and the Word produces a reaction from the enemy. Now, he mentions two things. In fact, let me read it for you exactly. You don't need to turn there, but I'll just read it directly for you. He says, when affliction or persecution arises. So, affliction or persecution. So, we can say, if he uses the word or, they're two different things, right? Affliction is stuff that happens to you. Stuff that the enemy sends, sure enough. But stuff that happens to you. Tonight. I want to make sure that you're prepared for the second one, persecution. I'm not going <laughs> to scare you or threaten. No, 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 this is good. Affliction, you attack the enemy. You just come right out. Persecution, you should be attacking the enemy as well because the Bible says our battle's not against flesh and blood. However, when persecution arises, the hard part is getting past that face that did it to you. The face is there. What we want to talk about tonight something that I shared with the, uh, uh, the saints in, in Loon Lake a little bit, but I, wanna, I, I trust it will come out a different way tonight. Um, but what we want to talk about is our God of justice. Our great God of justice. And how that's going to play in to when there's times of persecution, when there's times of tribulation. And your natural reaction, because here's the thing, I believe that God has called us to be prepared... And one of the things that has to be prepared above all is your blessed and beloved soul. Because the scripture says, He calls Jesus the shepherd and the guardian of our souls. Now do you think, if He calls Himself the shepherd and the guardian of your soul, that it's important that you yourself let your soul be guarded and shepherded? 
that your soul, where your mind, your will, emotions dwell, that it is so important that this place is, is, is sanctified, is kept, is guarded from the evil one, is not, is not uh, dented or influenced by the enemy's advances. Because think about this, the enemy really can't harm your spirit. Your spirit is his. Spirit's born again. Your flesh is of little consequence. You know, we know that what, when something good's happened in your spirit, it affects your flesh. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us, it quickens our mortal body, right? We know that the life that works in our spirit happens to be the same life that heals our body. We know this, but your body is just a slave to everything else. You can either make it a slave to righteousness, or it can be a slave to sin. But either way, it's just a slave. It doesn't do a lot of thinking. It's told what to do. It's the grunt. It's just a suit, right? Where is the battleground of your life? It's your soul. That's where you could be discouraged, or you could take courage. That's where you could be afraid, or you could be bold. That's where you could uh, trust in yourself or trust in a living God. It all takes place up here in your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions. What do you think is attacked when persecution and tribulation arise? You, you may feel the brunt of it in your body, but bodies heal. It's your soul. It's your soul that the enemy really wants to damage because a man can preach in a wheelchair just as well as he can preach uh, on his feet. What may stop him is if he lets his soul become discouraged. Because somebody can preach with a wounded body, but they can't preach with a wounded soul. So important that you guard this thing. I want to read you from Romans 12. We're going to start in verse 4. Actually, start in verse 9. The end of Romans is a blessed part. Because, you know, the, the book of Romans is so encouraging. Oh, what a, what a victorious book. What a book that tells you, what a letter of, of great theology and, and, and encouragement and doctrine of of who I am and why I'm saved and, and how I got born again and, and why, why does this even matter? I mean, I mean how, did I, how do I preach to others and, and what is the Holy Spirit doing in my life and how can I overcome, how can I conquer? But in the end of the book, there is some strong exhortation, there's some uh, fatherly influence and love and wisdom that's poured out to the, Ro- the church in Rome that I believe is so vital to us that we would just, we would just be amiss a to miss it. In Romans 12, 9, it says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. So it doesn't just say hate what is evil, love what is good. It says hate what is evil, cling to the good. You know, some people, because some people have a stronger hate for evil than their love for good. They end up clinging to the evil. What you dwell on is what you're clinging to, right? You hate the evil. Don't spend too much time thinking about it, how much you hate it. Move on. Love the good. Cling to the good. You know, don't start a website on how bad the evil is. Start a website, if you're going to start a website, on how good the good is. There's a time, there's a time to speak against evil, but there's, there should be a place where you dwell and, and the scripture says that your mind should dwell in whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is, all of these things. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Devoted. Devotion. 
That's a strong word, isn't it? Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer, there's the word devoted again. Two things we're meant to be devoted to. Not the only two things, but two big ones. Devoted to each other and devoted to prayer. It says, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. You know, it's, it's one thing to have a hospitable mindset, a hospitable attitude. It's another thing to practice hospitality. It's another thing to open up your home when you don't want to open up your home. It's another thing to let people in when you'd rather keep it just you and your family. It's another thing to uh, truly go the extra mile to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and even befriend the lonely. That's another message for another time. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, we here are faith people in the Word Church. You know that bless is not just something you do when someone sneezes. You know that bless is more than a, a good wish for them. To bless is more than just saying like the equivalent of good luck. To bless is a strong thing. It's the very thing that has carried humanity from the beginning of time, was God blessing. You've been given the ability to bless. Given the power to bless. And I don't just mean wish somebody well. I mean to truly bless them so that what you say to them actually affects their life. That what you've said to them, what you've commissioned a blessing upon them, that things actually turn better for them and they don't know why. And he says to do this for those that persecute you. In fact, in your Bible, it, it may have in the margin that it originally just says in many manuscripts, bless those who persecute. Well, that's harsh. Because that means that these are people that are known for persecuting. And you are supposed to bless them. Wow. Do not curse. Because James says, how can you curse and bless with the same mouth fresh water salt water they don't flow from the same stream train your mouth to be a powerful instrument a channel of the blessing of God so bless and do not curse rejoice with those who rejoice weep with those who weep be of the same mind toward one another do not be haughty in mind but associate with the lowly do not be wise in your own estimation Never. Now, never is never. Never is never. You can go and double check with Spiro and Tina and say, what does the original Greek say? Never. Okay, never. There's, there's, this is a strong word. It doesn't leave any loopholes. The lawyers can't get around this. Never is never. Never. Pay back evil for evil to anyone. Then he uses a big word like anyone. Never. Anyone. He's not leaving you any room here. There's no wiggle room. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. There's never an opportunity. Why? Well, you can't put out fire with fire. 
You can't, I mean, it doesn't do you any good. Evil cannot conquer evil. Evil only adds to evil. It's like, you know, did you ever see the old cartoons where the snowman comes alive and he's a bad snowman and he attacks them and they try to throw snowballs at him, but it's only helping him, right? Maybe you didn't see these cartoons. (laughs) I don't even know if my parents knew I watched this cartoon. The snowman comes alive and he's attacking people and they throw these snowballs. Oh, oh, it's sticking to him. He's making him bigger. Ah. This is what happens when you try to pay back evil for evil. It only increases the evil. Evil plus evil does not equal less evil. Right? We can do math. <laughs> evil plus evil equals more evil. Somebody said, I'm sure you've heard it several times. Don't even know who originally said it, but they said, Bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to get sick. You know, that's what it does. He's saying, I, I, I mean, I don't forgive you. I, I'm bitter against you. It doesn't really hurt them all that much. It hurts you a great deal. In fact, the book of Hebrews says, see to it that a root of bitterness does not arise in anyone, so that by it many are defiled. Root of bitterness can rise up in you. In fact, in the instance he's speaking of, it's bitterness within the church that causes them to uh, not be able to relate to one another, not be able to receive the word. And, and after a while, many are defiled. And you've got a bunch of people in the audience that can't hear the sermon because they're ticked off all the time. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. What does this say? So far as it depends on you, which means... That there are times when it, you can do everything in your power and people won't want peace with you. You just do whatever you can do. I mean, you don't go cry over the people that hate you because Jesus said they hated me. They'll hate you too. You do whatever you can to pursue peace with them. As far as it depends on you, then let it go because there will be those that aren't going to want peace no matter what you do because they don't have peace with God, so they can't have peace with you. But if they're going to trip over something, let them trip over Jesus and not you. Because then at least you can stand up before the throne of judgment and you can say, I did all I could. I showed them the love of God. They denied you, Jesus. I would not want to get there and have to account and say, Jesus say, they didn't deny me, they denied you. They never got to me. I wouldn't want that. So it says, as far as it depends on you, if possible, be at peace with all men. Never. Uh Uh-oh, there's a word again. Never. Never. Take your own revenge. Do you know you sold that right? When you got born again, you gave your life away. You sold the right to revenge. You sold it. It's gone. You don't have it anymore. You've been bought with a price. You gave up your right to take revenge. You gave up your right to not forgive. Because Jesus said in that great parable about the wicked servant that comes to his master and owes him what I've heard some scholars say is the equivalent of billions of dollars. Something he could never pay back. And his master says, I forgive you your debt. Wow, how would you feel after that? I mean, we've all had these moments where weights seem to be off our shoulders. Can you imagine the amount of weight off your shoulder then? Because you knew you could never pay it. It's done. 
Then he goes and he finds somebody who owes him, what's the equivalent of it? Only a few thousand. Shakes him down, says, give me my money. I can't do it. I can't pay right now. I'll get it to you soon. He throws him in prison until he can pay his debt or until somebody comes along and pays it for him. And the master comes and says, I forgave you an astronomical amount and then you go and you don't forgive this guy who owed you like way less. What's your problem? Yet this is what we do when God has forgiven us uh, an amount we could never pay, an amount that was payable by death. He paid that price. And when we go and somebody wrongs us, and we hold it against them. And we take our own revenge. Or we say we, don't, we refuse to forgive. It's the same thing. It's, it's like He forgave us way more you could ever imagine. You don't have a right to not forgive anybody else now. You've given it up. Now this does not mean that God's not going to do anything about it. This, is not gonna, this doesn't mean that injustice rules. We're going to talk about God's justice tonight. I want you to know that God will have justice. But it's not your business what He does. Because as Jonah found out, how many of you remember Jonah? Now, when you're a kid, you think this, the whole story of Jonah, the whole point of Jonah is don't run from God. That's what I thought. Don't run from God. He'll catch you, he'll put you in a fish's mouth and spit you out and vomit you somewhere. That's true. He may not always use the fish. Not always. Sometimes uses different methods. But don't run from God, right? But the big, a huge theme of Jonah is the way Jonah reacts to Nineveh. Think about who, well now you just hear the word Nineveh and you go, oh Nineveh, that's... When you hear Nineveh, who do you think of? You think of Jonah, right? This is the only time we ever hear this. But if you study ancient history, I'm not talking about ancient like Greeks and Romans, I'm talking ancient, ancient history. You find out the Assyrians, and I've told you this before, the Assyrians are brutal people. They, and I've said this before too, they make the Nazis look like Girl Scouts. They were horrible people. So cruel to their prisoners. Debased and, and, and debauched amongst, amongst each other, but to their prisoners and people who would rebel, horrible and brutal. Things that they did I don't even feel comfortable uttering in this setting. So you can imagine how Jonah might have seen this. He may have had people he knew, maybe even relatives that were taken off by the Assyrians and treated this way. And God says, tell them to repent or I'll destroy them. And Jonah says, yes. Oh, oh this is going to be sweet. Oh, we're going to see a barbecue. And I, I mean, finally, repayment. Finally. We get to see them just totally destroyed and wiped out. He goes and he goes, repent! Or if you don't, God will destroy your city. Well, then the unexpected happens. They repent. They, they play it so safe that the babies don't get to eat. The dogs don't get to eat. The cows don't get to eat. Nobody eats. We're fasting and repenting. Can you imagine making your baby repent? You know what I mean? Put a little... Put a little ash on their head. Oh, you're repenting. Cry, cry, you know? And I'm sure they would. They're not eating. But they're playing it so safe. And I'm sure that wasn't even God's intention, but they don't want to risk it. And Jonah is up 
on the hill. He's picked the best seat in the house to watch total destruction. Far enough away that he's not singed. Should God use that method? But close enough that I can see. And I can hear some screaming. Oh, sweet Lord. This is going to be good. And he sits down. And uh, the sun's getting hot, and he's a little uncomfortable. It's okay, though. Best seat in the house. I can deal with the sun. But then all of a sudden, this plant comes. And he loves this plant. Oh, this is beautiful. Oh, to rest underneath the shade of this plant. Oh, thank you, Lord. You are good. I got the seat. I got the open seat for destruction and my own umbrella. <laughs> How could life be better? This is great. And then this, all of a sudden, the sun beats down, and the worms start to eat the plant, and it, it dies. And he goes, God, why? You knew I loved that plant. Why do you hate me so much? And he goes, you cry about a plant dying, and you rejoice that people, all these people are going to die? Uh-oh. It's just like Jesus saying to the sons of thunder, you don't know what spirit you are. Now, we can draw from this, and we think, if God chooses to forgive, it's his choice. Because you've been forgiven so much that every debt ever owed you now goes to him. What did Jesus pray in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debtors, our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now you may have read in King James which says trespass, trespassers. But the original language seems pretty clear. Debts and debtors. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about every time somebody wrongs you, you put it on their account as a debt. And he says, forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. No one owes you anything anymore. When they hurt you, you don't put it on their account. You forgive and let God, if God wants to handle it, he can do that. But you give it to him. Now, we have to trust in this God of justice. We've got to trust that there are times when there's things taken from you that shouldn't have been taken from you. There are times when injustice is done and you go, God, where is the justice? There is justice. Let me look at this. Let's look at this verse. He says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but... So don't take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. Oh, New Testament, guys. <laughs> don't walk out now. He said, wrath. This is, this is you know, the book of Romans, you know? This is the one where you found out you were saved by grace. This is good, you know? <laughs> Lest you stone me, this is all right. He says, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. What does that mean? It belongs to Him, not to you. You don't own the rights to vengeance. You don't have the right to vengeance. You can't be a vigilante and take it into your own hands. It's not in your hands. He says, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, what does this mean? If we take our own revenge, what, is, what can we draw from this verse? We take our own revenge. We've not left God any room to bring justice. Because he says, leave room for the wrath of God. So you take your own revenge. You've not left room for God. Which means you're going to mess the situation up even worse. You want justice? Leave room for God. Vengeance is His. He'll repay. 
That doesn't just mean he'll repay evil. It also means he'll repay you. If you've been stolen from, the good judge can get your money back. But leave it to him. But, uh uh-oh, see, see, we're going on the teeter-totter here, and you thought for a second, you're talking about forgiveness. Oh, then he talks about wrath, and then he puts another but in there. But, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, this is such a confusing verse. Burning coals, what do you mean? Now, there are many studies on this and what that originally means. That's a quote from the Old Testament. And in that time, I will give you my opinion. Can you, will you tolerate my opinion on this? In that time, from what I've studied, in that time there was a commonly known, originated in Egypt, in Egypt an Egyptian practice of showing shame and repentance in which someone would walk around with coals on their head to show that they were truly sorry. This was around the time that this was written. So they would have understood the cultural implication there. What does this mean to you? Because the Bible talks about godly sorrow that leads to repentance, right? Which leads to salvation without regret. Praise the Lord, hey? That means you don't have to go through life regretting and feeling guilt and shame because you know what? After repentance, you're clean. But in doing so, you right now have brought this place to, person to a place to leave room for repentance. That they will feel, all of a sudden, when you treat them, you show them the light. Because light sheds, light's what breaks the darkness. When they're given darkness to you, you show them light. It exposes their own darkness. It exposes their own iniquity. It puts that coal of shame on there that leads to a repentance, if they'll let it. If not, it's just shame. But it gives them an opportunity to repent. Isn't this our goal? To give people... I mean, so that, so that instead of condemning a man, instead of taking revenge on a man and just hurting him for the sake of hurting him, you've left room for him to get right with God. You've left room for him to repent. What a wonderful thing. Heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How are you overcome with evil? If you do take your own revenge, if you keep unforgiveness, bitterness, if you let evil affect your soul, you've been overcome. But if you don't let it affect who you are, because who are you? You're light. You walk in light. You walk in love, right? So if evil has affected you, you've been overcome. But if it doesn't change who you are, you have overcome. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. When you have faith in a God of justice, that He will take care of it. He will take justice into His hands. You don't have to. He will get you justice. Because you have been wronged. You have been hurt. We know this, but we know our God cares more than you care, and He will lead justice to victory. He'll handle it. He'll handle that person. He'll handle that situation if you bring it to Him. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus say with the widow? Remember the widow that 
that came to the wicked judge for justice. The wicked judge said, uh, she's, she's, she's bugging me, I mean, but, but you know what? <laughs> she doesn't have any money. He's corrupt, right? He was a corrupt judge. And the widow came to him for justice, but he, he works on a different system. If I get a bribe, I give you justice. But you've got nothing to offer me. Why do I need to spend my time on you? But the widow came back every day and banged on his door, even at night. And he says, I'm going to, oh, I'm just going to help this widow out because she's bothering me. That's what the New American Standard says. She bothers me. <laughs> I, she's bugging me so much. She's annoying me. She won't leave me alone. Fine, I'll give her justice. And then Jesus said, how much more will your God being a righteous judge give you justice when you cry to him night and day and he won't take long is what he says what does this mean you got to cry to God for justice when I say leave room for God I don't mean just leave it alone if you need justice you go to the judge and say Lord I ask for justice I, I, I know you are a just God and I need justice here he says this is the, this is the Lord Jesus telling you cry to him Night and day, and he won't delay long. Because the wicked judge delayed long because he was wicked. The righteous judge, he's not going to take long because he's righteous. Because he wants to work for you. Because he, um, not work for you, but work on your behalf. Because he wants to act on your behalf. Because he is a righteous judge. This is our great God. Did you, I mean, it is so amazing that he'd even, uh, that he would think about it, that he'd even call us, that, I mean, that he'd even listen to us and, and, and that he would not have to be annoyed. Because that's not what God's asking you to do, is annoy him, bother him. No, he just says, you know, be consistent, be faithful. But then he says, here's the question though. Will the Son of Man find faith on the earth when he returns? Will he have, find a bunch of people that have just decided to take everything in their own hands, trust in themselves, do it themselves? Or will he find people who have faith kept faith with the Master and put their lives in His hands. This is what He asks. Praise God. I want to show you some examples from the life of King David. The life of good old King David. I love the Psalms. The Psalms are so full of the Spirit. You know, we can't, sometimes people write it off as just David writing, writing the blues. <laughs> or, or David, you know, David doing what he does. But the truth of the matter is, come on guys, the New Testament quotes from King David more than most prophets. Directly referring to the first big sermon that was ever preached after Jesus went up. Put the cornerstone of the sermon on something David said. Because he said David wasn't talking about himself. He was prophesying about Jesus. So there is such... We've got to remember that all Scripture is inspired. God breathed. Spirit breathed. That the Holy Spirit wrote this book. And He used people. So when the Psalms were written, you may say, well, he's going through a rough place. I don't need that. He did some things that were not Spirit-inspired. He did some things that God did not tell him to do. But what he wrote in the Psalms was guided and shepherded by God for your benefit. So when David writes in Psalm 52, 
about a great injustice. We're going to go there in a minute, but first I want you to go to uh, 1 Samuel 22. David, uh, as you know, was anointed to be king by the prophet Samuel when he was just a shepherd. He later went on to kill Goliath, gain much renown, lead Israel to victory, marry the king's daughter, become a captain of Saul's armies, one of Saul's strongest supporters, even though he knew he would replace King Saul. Even though he knew that the Lord had departed from King Saul, the spirit had been removed from King Saul because of Saul's disobedience. But David yet showed honor, right? Wouldn't touch King Saul. Even when Saul chased him, Saul tried to kill him. He would not touch him. Would not even, not even touch the man. Not hit him, not slap him, not kill him. Nothing. And he felt bad for even ripping a piece off his clothes. What honor. A man that's trying to kill you and you refuse to do anything because he's the Lord's anointed. What's he saying? This is not my business. This is God's. This is not mine. It's not my job to take Saul out of the way. It's God's. All I know is I honor God's anointed. Yeah, sometimes God's anointed people and uh, they're still wrong. That's not the point. We don't have to follow people who are wrong all the time. I'm not telling you that. I'm not telling you to be blindly led by somebody just because they say they're anointed. Certainly not. But there are times where we say this is God's business, not my own. This is what David said. David uh, comes to a place called Nob. And he's running and he's, he's hungry. And he's alone and he's scared. Comes to a place called Nob where many of the priests of the Lord dwell. When he comes to Nob, he finds the main priest, Ahimelech. And he, he, he kind of tricks him. And he says, um, Ahimelech says, what are you doing here by yourself? And he says, uh, King Saul sent me on a secret mission. Truth of the matter is he's being chased by King Saul. But Ahimelech doesn't know that yet. So he goes, uh, uh, Saul sent me on a secret mission. And that wouldn't be that weird because David was a captain of King Saul's army. David was King Saul's son-in-law. So that makes sense, right? Okay. If he's going to trust anybody, might as well trust you. You've shown yourself honorable. Shows up and he says, can I have some bread? Ahimelech says, you can't have that bread. That's the priest's bread. That's the consecrated bread. He says, we've been pretty clean. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, we've kept ourselves clean. We've kept our vessels clean. Our, you know, That's another thing for another time. He says, we've kept ourselves clean. We can have some bread. Come on, give us some bread. The priest says, okay, yeah, all right, fine. You can have some bread. He says, you know, do you have any swords? The priest says, we've got one sword. Sword of Goliath. Remember that one? Yeah, I remember. I used it. Chopped his head off. Okay. You can have that sword. I'll give you some water. But we find out the real reason David went. Because David could have got all that from a nearby village or town. But the real reason he came to Nob was that's where he could find an ephod. Now, I'm not talking about the ephod like the linen ephod, just the cloak that the priest would wear. I'm talking about the, the breastplate ephod that held the umum and the thumum. Literally, the lights and perfections. Now, you may say, that sounds awful Mormon to me. Or you may not have any idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> the Mormons have some weird version of the umum and thumum, but I'm talking about the biblical version, where they would know, they would come to ask what God's will was by 
using the umum and the thum. The idea being if, if the umum cast the light on something, the answer was no. But if the thumum cast light on it, there'd be different colors. The thumum cast light, then the answer was yes. They would cast lots and they use the umum and thumum. And, and mind you, the last time they ever used the, the, the every time the last time they ever cast lots to find out God's will was right before the day of Pentecost. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit now. We never have to do that again. Thank God, hey? This is awesome. But in that time, David found it imperative to inquire of the Lord. So he knows that the priests have the umum and the thumum. This is how God's used, to, this is what God has used to give definitive orders to his people. So they go. He goes and he says, bring me the umum and thumum, inquire of the Lord for me. And the priest does this. So this is all the background that you need to bring us up to speed. To 1 Samuel 22. Saul later comes. In verse 7, Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Hear now, O Benjamites. Benjamites would have been Saul's kinsmen. Will the son of Jesse also give to you the fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? For all you have conspired against me. Because he's paranoid at this time. He's, he's tormented by evil spirits. He thinks everybody's against him. He says, all you have conspired against me. So that there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you who is sorry for me. <laughs> there is none of you who is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. Now I better tell you something real quick before we go on. In chapter 21, it says that David notices that there's a guy there that shouldn't be there at, the, at Nob. And it's a man named Doeg the Edomite. You never trust a man named Doeg. It's a rule for life, all right? Never trust a man named Doeg. You can trust a man named Doug, but not Doeg. Doeg is different than Doug. D Doeg is not to be trusted. The Edomite, which means he's a descendant of Esau. And Doeg the Edomite was one of the chief shepherds of Saul's flocks. And he happens to be hanging around just watching. And David notices him, but he lets it slide. Then Doeg the Edomite speaks up on verse 9. Who was standing by the servants of Saul said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob. They won't even say his name. To Ahimelech the son of Ahutub. And he inquired of the Lord for him. Gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahatub, and all of his father's household, the priests who were in Nob, and all them who came to the king. And Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahatub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. He doesn't know anything's wrong yet. He still doesn't know David is a guy that Saul doesn't like. Saul said to him, Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me, in that you've given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him? so that he would rise up against me by laying an ambush as it is this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among you of all your servants is as faithful as David, even the king's son-in-law, who is captain over your guard and is honored in your house? In other words, how was I supposed to know that David was not on your good list? Who out of everybody would be the one guy you would trust? Verse 15. Did I, just begin, did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? In other words, this is the first time I've done this. How did I know this was a problem? 
Far be it from me. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the household of my father. For your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. I didn't know you were chasing him. I didn't know he was in bad standing with you. I didn't know he was a rebel. But the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, Turn around and put the priests of the Lord to death. Because their hand is also with David. And because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. But the servants of the king were smart here and were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priests of the Lord. Good for them. They didn't want to, Of course, you were just asking an Israelite to kill all the priests. Never going to do it. Verse 18. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn around and attack the priests. Doeg, Doeg, Doeg. Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priests. And he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. 85 priests. We're talking about one guy. One guy went around with a spear or a sword and personally killed 85 men. This is not a small thing. He didn't just order a bunch of people killed. He, with his own hand, plunged it into them, killing them one by one. If that weren't enough, he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword. Both men and women, children and infants, also oxen, donkeys, and sheep, he struck with the edge of the sword. But one son of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. He went and he killed babies. After killing 85 priests, he killed women. He killed innocent men. He killed babies. And he killed their dogs and their cattle. He killed everybody. What a wicked man. If you feel the right to hate anybody, wouldn't you feel the right to hate this guy? Of anybody, you got the right to hate. This guy is the villain of all villains. Killed 85 priests. Slaughtered men, women, and children babies this guy runs to David David said to Abiathar I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household what, what, can you see what's weighing on his shoulder he feels responsible for all those priests dying he feels responsible for a whole village dying he says this is my fault I saw him there and I didn't do anything about it. I knew he was going to do something. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. For you who seeks my life seeks your life. You are safe with me. Now I want you to think about what David's thinking at this point. David is a man of war. And if there's any time to execute justice upon Doeg and Saul who ordered the whole thing, stood by and watched Doeg do this. Don't think that Saul wasn't, didn't. He was just too much of a coward to do it with his own hands. These two men have earned more than their share of wrath. Don't you think David, who's familiar with the sword, who knew those men, who trusted those priests, who received bread from their hand, who probably looked at some of those babies as he walked by, may have stopped and talked to some of the villagers. He knew them. He saw them. He trusted them. They ate with him. And now they're all dead because of two men. What do you think you want to do at that point? You want to go back and get some revenge. 
What does he do? Psalm 52. Psalm 52 was written right after this incident. Instead of picking up his sword and going and slaughtering Doeg, David goes into the tent, cries out to the Lord, the God of justice, cries out to God, picks up his instrument, begins to sing. You know what I find interesting? That this psalm is addressed for the choir director. Isn't that interesting? A song that came out of such a terrible, terrible incident in the history of Israel. David writes something from it from his spirit, and it's later sung by a choir. He says this, Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? Who's he talking about? He's talking about Doeg. Why do you boast in your evil, big man? You feel big? Killed a bunch of unarmed men? Killed a bunch of men, women, and children? Little babies? You feel big? Listen to this. The loving kindness of God endures all day long. What a strange thing to say. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. You may have killed 85 priests, but you did not even dent the loving kindness of our God. Your evil is nothing compared to His good. You may have thought you damaged something. But let me tell you, big guy, your evil cannot even compare for a second to the loving kindness of our God. He says this, Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, O worker of deceit. Your lo you love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right. Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. Listen, he doesn't say, I'm going to get you. He doesn't say, I'm going to find you. He says, God will break you down forever. It's not my job. God's going to handle this. God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The righteous will see in fear and will laugh at him saying, Behold this, the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. But as for me, now listen to this, he does not for one second entertain revenge in his own heart. Not for one second does he say, I'm coming to get you. God's going to let me destroy you. No, he says, God will take care of you. But as for me, I'm not entering into your evil. I'm not entering into your deceit. As for me, I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. I will give you thanks forever. So he, he looks up. He says, I will give you thanks forever because you have done it. In his eyes, it's already done. In his eyes, it's already handled. Revenge is the Lord's. I'm not worrying about it for a second. You've done it. Oh, that the people of God would cry out like this. Oh, that they would thank the Lord when evil is done to them, when things are stolen from them, when people are harmed because of evil. And they say, I thank the Lord because you've done it. You're handling it. I've given it to you. And justice is already done as far as I'm concerned. You're going to take care of it. In fact, you already have. He says, and I will wait on your name, for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. Powerful. Now turn back for a moment. Hold your spot there. 
But turn back to, to the next chapter, 1 Samuel, chapter 23. David has suffered huge loss. He feels guilty because he asked for somebody's aid and, and tricked them. He feels that he deceived them. He didn't tell them he was in Saul's bad books. And he saw the guy that he knew was going to rat on them all. And he let it go. So he feels the death of all these people on his own conscience, but he's given it to God. He's cleared his conscience and says, Lord, this is yours to handle. For Samuel 23, he then goes to a place called Ziph. In verse 15, David became aware that Saul had come to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horesh and encouraged him in God. Thus he said to him, Do not be afraid, because the hand of my father Saul will not find you. But you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And Saul, my father, knows that also. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed at Horesh while Jonathan went to his house. Then Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, these Ziphites that he's never met. He doesn't know them. He's never done anything wrong to them. But they're cowards. They don't want to be punished like the people at Nob were. So they go to Saul and they say, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds of Horesh, on the hill of Hekelah, which is in the south of Jeshimon? Now then, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to do so. And our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. David once again is betrayed by people who he's done no wrong to. Saul said, may you be blessed of the Lord. Whatever, man. <laughs> like you've got that right anymore. May you be blessed of the Lord, for you've had compassion on me. Go now and make more sure and investigate and see his place where his haunt is and who has seen him there, for I am told that he's very cunning. See, once again, he's poisoning them against them making David sound like a tricky, crafty guy. So look and learn about all the hiding places where he hides himself and return to me with certainty, and I will go with you. And if he's in the land, I will search him out amongst the thousands of Judah. Then they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon and Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And when Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, and he came down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard it, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. I'm going to turn back to Psalm 54. So in this place, David is now fresh from hearing about the wickedness done to these priests at Nob. Wickedness done to the evil there. He's just gotten over that, right? You guys go, I mean, if I fight one battle in two years, this is good, right? Now I get a break. I get to go back home, drink milkshakes until I'm you know, back to feeling good, and then I can go back and fight another battle. David is not getting any rest here. And he goes to Ziph, and he finally finds a place, and it's in Judah, right? So he figures, you know, hey, <laughs> finally some of my own people. And, and he goes to take a break, and they, I mean, these guys go and rat him out. Not only that, but they offer to go and find him and spy on him. Man, <laughs> Psalm 54, it says, for the choir director on stringed instruments. A Moscow of David, when the Ziphites came and said to Saul, Is not David hiding himself among us? So, once again, he gets this news. What does he do? He goes to God. He picks up his instrument. He sings a song. Save me, O God, by your name. And vindicate me. Listen to that word, vindicate. 
Vindicate me by your power. This is our prayer. You don't go and try to get your own vindication. You go, you vindicate me when you're falsely accused, when you're slandered, when people speak evil of you. You say, you vindicate me. I'm not trying to vindicate myself. You vindicate me by your power. You serve a God of justice. Hear my prayer, O oh God. Give ears, ear to the words of my mouth for strangers. Strangers. Not my enemies, but strangers. Have risen against me and violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before him. Remember what he said about the other guy. You did not make God your refuge. Here he said they did not set God before them. It's clear where the line is drawn. Behold, God is my helper. God, listen to this, is my helper. He is my helper. God is my helper. That may be a small thing. You may think that's a children's church truth, but that's a powerful truth. God is my helper. If no one else is on your side, He's on your side. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. You see, when your soul could be irrevocably damaged by betrayal, betrayal can damage your soul if you let it. You can let it, let it hurt you so bad that you put up walls that keep people out, but it also keeps you from showing love to anybody else. It also keeps love from coming in. Betrayal is such an easy thing to let your soul be damaged and broken. That's why Satan loves to use it. But if you won't let that happen, if you'll give it to God and keep your soul pure, you say, you sustain my soul. What does sustain mean? You hold it up. You keep it. You keep it in one piece. You're not going to let me fall to pieces when I'm betrayed. You're not going to let me fall to pieces when someone attacks me or I am hurt. I'm not going to stay hurt. You sustain my soul. Look to God for the sustenance of your soul. Oh, my friends, I know you've been betrayed. I know you've been hurt. I know you've been attacked. But the Lord wants your soul to be sustained. What does that mean? It means it didn't change. It didn't weaken. It didn't get any worse off than it was before you were attacked. Which means you love as passionately as you always loved. Which means you give as much as you've always given. When you're hurt, the temptation is to close off and guard yourself. But when the Lord sustains your soul, you are able to open your heart to other people still and bring them in and be vulnerable around them and say, I still love you even though I know when I open up my heart you could stab me. I'm not worried because the Lord is the sustainer of my soul. This is huge, my friends. This is huge. The Lord cares about your soul and I care about it too. We could have a church of jaded people that never get hurt but never can love. Or you can have a church of people that may get betrayed, may get attacked, but love as fiercely as they've always loved. Are as hospitable as they've ever been. Are as open with newcomers as they were before anybody did them any wrong. Innocent like a dove. The wisest servants. These are who God's called us to be. Innocent, but wise. Here's what he says. He, verse 5, He, not me, He will recompense the evil to my foes. Now listen to this. Destroy them in your faithfulness. What? 
<laughs> what a strange thing to say. <laughs> you expect to see the word destroy and faithfulness in the same sentence? We're going to write a song? This is for the choir. Destroy them in your faithfulness, oh God. You know, can you imagine us singing this on a Sunday morning? <laughs> Somebody watch it. What? What? <laughs> your faithfulness destroys them, oh Lord. What? Ooh. <laughs> the evil one. <laughs> what is this talking about? He's a faithful, which means he's just, he's righteous. He never lets you down. And he will keep his faith. He will keep the faith with you. He'll keep his side of the deal. He's not going to let evil conquer. But you cannot take your own revenge you must leave room for God and His faithfulness and His loving kindness. And if God chooses to forgive, then rejoice. Don't get bitter. Be happy that they repented. For the Scripture says that even the angels of heaven, they rejoice when one sinner comes to repentance. You rejoice too. If someone has harmed you and done you evil and they repent and they're forgiven, rejoice that they didn't have to suffer the loss. Rejoice that they didn't have to suffer the punishment that, that was coming their way. Just as you didn't have to suffer your punishment. Just as you were set free from punishment and wrath. Oh, but you'll get paid back. Even if they're forgiven, you'll get paid back. You will be recompensed. You will be repaid. Your name will be cleared. Your reputation will be given back. Your reputation is always in damage when you identify with somebody like Jesus. So when I say your reputation is going to be, I mean, take that. Your reputation is going to be as good as Jesus. People are always going to hate him. So don't worry if they hate you too for that reason but he will bring justice to victory. The scripture says, keep your behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles so that in the thing which they slander you, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. Slander means they're lying about you and they will lie about you. But if you keep your behavior excellent, <laughs> nobody's going to believe him. And even if they did, in the day of visitation, they're going to glorify God. Let's read the next verse. I willingly... Willingly, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from all trouble. He, the God of justice, the righteous judge, has delivered me from all trouble. And my eye has looked with satisfaction upon my enemy. I want you to look at a life of a man who was betrayed, who was forced to live with the guilt of the slaughter of innocence, and yet was able to keep his soul from being damaged. Wow. Isn't that huge? And you know this because Saul's grandson comes to him, and David gives him a place at the table. Gives them a feast. How could that ever happen? Especially in Bible times. We don't, we don't hold connections to family members like they did back then. The sins of the fathers are visited upon the sons and the sons' sons. That's the way they thought of it. 
but because of the covenant with Jonathan. He kept his soul right. And Mephibosheth thought, surely I'll be slaughtered. I'll be killed. Please just spare my child. David says, you're not going to be killed. You're going to eat with me tonight. You keep your soul clear and free when you give it to God. Give it to the God of justice. Cry out to Him for justice. He will repay. Leave room for His vengeance. Leave room for His action. Leave room and He'll take care of it. You step in. There's no room for God to move in this situation. You just bungled the plan. You let Him move. He'll take care of it. Cry out to a God of justice. Justice is coming your way. Injustice does not have to rule. But neither should you take it on yourself for one second to take revenge. You take it to God. And He will vindicate you. And He will repay. Vengeance belongs to Him, not to you. So praise the Lord. If persecution arises because of the Word... We will not strike in return. We will not curse. We will not hold bitterness. We will not seek revenge. We will not harbor unforgiveness. We will trust in the hand of the living God and rejoice if they're spared. Rejoice if they repent and are forgiven. Rejoice, my friends. Don't, re- don't rejoice in injustice. Don't rejoice in the downfall of the wicked. Just rejoice in the justice of God. Oh, our prayer is is that sinner is going to come back and repent and find a life free of guilt and shame and condemnation and praise God side by side with you. Wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't it be better if He stands beside you on the front row with hands lifted and you're able to embrace His friends at the end? But if he doesn't, if he rejects the forgiveness of God, then let God handle it and keep your hands clean. God will honor this attitude. But remember, let's remember the words of Jesus. If you need justice, cry out to our righteous God. Day and night, he says. This is the words of Jesus. Day and night, which means more than once you talk to God about. Anytime it comes up in your heart and your soul, you bring it to Him. You, you keep from whining to the Lord. Because what did the widow say? What did the widow say? Give me justice. She didn't say, you sold me. Why don't you ever? She just simply demanded what was hers. When you go to the Lord, you just say, I'm coming for what you've promised. You've, you've guaranteed me justice. You, you realize that He is the Lord which means that He owns you because you've given yourself to Him. He set you free, but He still owns you. He bought you with a price, which means your enemies are His enemies and your problems are His problems to take care of. Not your problems to take care of, His problems to take care of. You give into your hands. And when someone sins against you, they sin against God. You let Him handle it. You say, you're my Lord. You think... I mean, come on, let's go back to the biblical definition of Lord. Lord didn't just mean the one you obey. Lord was the one that took care of you. Lord was the one that held you, that guarded you, that that made sure that justice was done for you. That was a good Lord, a righteous Lord. 
That's your Lord. Remember when God says, I will be, He says, you will be my people and I will be your God. He is our God. He is a God of justice. He is a God who vindicates the righteous. He is a God who stands in your defense. He is a God who is your advocate. He is a God who is your righteousness. He is a God who stands up for you when no one else will. When Paul said, I was at my trial and no one stood with me, no one testified on my defense, Jesus stood with me and He strengthened me and He rescued me out of the mouth of the lion. Amen? This is our God. Will you stand up? This is our God. Our God of justice. Our God of justice. There are two things you can do in error when you've been wronged. The first is to take your own revenge and try to repay by evil. That is, that's, you're not left room for God. The second is to be a doormat and let it go without taking it to the Lord. Because you know what happens? You still, you're still holding it. You're just too scared to do anything about it. You're still holding it. It still comes up. It still makes you feel like a loser and it makes you feel like you're a nobody and a coward. You sit around and go, people just take advantage of me. And it comes up until one day you just explode at somebody and unload on somebody. But if you take it to the Lord, then it is truly done in your eyes. And you don't carry that hurt anywhere else. And you don't carry it into your next relationship. And you don't carry it into your next conversation. And you don't carry it into the house of the Lord. You let it go. You let it go. So the two things you could do wrong is take your own revenge or not do anything about it, not ever mention it. Now I'm talking about if you're really hurt, if you've really been, if injustice has been done to you and you feel it. There have been plenty of times where somebody's done something to me. I, I didn't even think of anything. I let it go because it wasn't a big deal to me. But I'm talking about something that is a big deal. You didn't know what to do, so you just didn't do anything, but it stayed with you. And that hurt affects every relationship after that. And your soul is damaged, and you, you guard yourself, won't let people in. So what, what do you do? You don't take your own revenge, but you do take it to God. And then you let it go. Then you walk away from it and say, I give thanks to you, for it's done. It's done. In, in my mind, it's done. It doesn't matter what happens from here. I've given it to you. You'll give me justice. You cry out to the God of justice for justice. Amen. If you need justice, and you feel that there are still some things, you've been wrong, you've been hurt, or maybe something's been stolen from you, and you say, it's every right that I get it back. Someone's betrayed you, or and you just say, I just want to be able to move on from this with a clear and pure heart, and I don't want to harbor unforgiveness, and I want my soul to be, to be strong and sustained. I don't want my soul to be damaged. Would you just come up here, and we're going to pray together. If there's anybody here. Because uh, there's justice, but it is in the hands of God. But we're going to give it to the Lord, and then we're going to let it go. And the peace of God, which passes your understanding, is going to guard your hearts and minds. It's going to set up a garrison around your heart and your mind. It's going to put an armed guard 24 hours a day, 7 days a week around your heart and mind. And not going to let Satan come in and steal anything. Not going to let your thoughts go back to hate or bitterness or unforgiveness. Not going to let your thoughts go back to hurt or a feeling of betrayal.
but he is going to guard your hearts and your minds so that you can stay in faith. Lord, we lift our hands to you. Oh, great God of justice, hear your servants crying out for justice. Lord, we don't cry with whines or wails, Lord, but we cry with the voice of a righteous. The voice of the righteous who know their God. Bring us justice. We, we call for justice in these situations. Lord, if they've been wronged, if their name has been slandered, if they've been betrayed, if they've been hurt, I pray that justice will come, that vindication will come, that their name, that they, who they are, they will be vindicated, that justice will be led to victory, that everything in darkness will be brought to light in the name of Jesus, and that their enemies, that every weapon that's been formed against them will be just shattered, and every tongue that rises against them will be condemned in the name of Jesus. And I, Lord, I know that our souls are valuable to you. And Lord, so I pray right now that you would restore our souls. Restore our hearts back to a place of innocence. Back to a place like, like a state where they've never been wronged. A state where they've never been betrayed or hurt. A state of softness towards you. In Jesus' name, so that we can love as You loved. So that we can forgive as You've forgiven. In Jesus' name. Lord, I pray that forgiveness would rise up in us. Oh, a great, great forgiveness to be able to say, it is not my debt anymore. It is Yours. It is Yours to hold. We give it to You right now. I just want You to think about whatever you came up here for, I want you to think about it, and now you're going to think about it for the last time, you're going to let it go. Just let it go to God. Just, just see yourself giving it to Him. You're not throwing it in the sea of forgetfulness, you're giving it to God. See yourself giving it to the Lord. And He is going to act on your behalf. Justice will be led to victory you will receive justice. Father, if anybody has been stolen from, I pray that it will be repaid to them with interest. In Jesus' name, that the thief will not get what he's stolen, but will have to pay back seven times what he's stolen, and they will be vindicated. In Jesus' name, they will be vindicated. They will be avenged. In Jesus' name. Your name will be glorified through our lives through our relationships and all our dealings. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Now stay soft, stay open, stay loving. Let it go. Be innocent as if you've never been hurt, as if you've never been wronged, as if you've never been damaged. Because God has not called you a damaged people, but He's called you His own. A people with His shalom peace. Great wholeness. Nothing missing. Nothing broken. Oh, He's going to restore it, guys. He's going to restore back to you. Restoration. Oh, restoration. We call for restoration. Divine restoration. Restore, restore, restore what the canker worm and the locust have stolen. Restore, restore, restore. Lord of the harvest, restore to us years that have been lost. 
Restore to us the harvest that has been stolen. Restore, restore, restore. Restore the broken pieces to wholeness. Restore the dead things to life. Restore the, co- the things that it may be in a coma to come back with liveliness again. That we could love with a pure heart. That we could rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And not feel like we've carried the weight of the world on our shoulder because we've let the weight go to you. No more guilt. No more shame. No more shame. We reject shame in Jesus' name. We reject condemnation in Jesus' name. We let it go. We refuse to be ashamed for something that was never, uh, never, never our problem to start with. No more shame. No more shame because you've been victimized. No more shame because you've been hurt. No more shame because of someone else's wrongdoing. You let it go. You give it to God. You are not a coward. You are not a coward. You are giving it to the Lord, the God of justice. Praise the Lord. Now thank Him. Thank Him, thank Him, thank You. Thank You, Lord, for You have done it. Thank You, Lord, for You have done it. Thank You, Lord, for You have done it. You have restored. You have vindicated Your righteous ones. You have brought justice to the place where we live. You have destroyed injustice. The wicked one will flee we submit ourselves to the Lord we resist the devil and he flees hallelujah 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 oh great God of justice great God of justice God of justice well you know what sometime I'm just going to tell you sometime go take a look look in your concordance and see how many times the Lord talks about justice you know he talks about justice more than most things He says, I love justice. I love it. I love justice. (laughs) I love justice, the Lord God says. I love it. Which means he'll see that it happens. He brings justice. He is not slow concerning his promises. Call out to your God. Call out to the righteous judge and he'll do it. Amen. Be blessed. Be blessed, be blessed, be blessed. And in your blessing, bless others. Amen.